Well, good morning. Our scripture passage this morning comes from Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and we will pay particular attention to verses 1 through 14. And as we're turning there in our Bibles, I think it would be helpful just to kind of recall to ourselves what... Am I sounding okay out there? It sounds kind of... Okay. It might be helpful to recall to ourselves what God's been teaching us from his word the past couple of weeks about forgiveness. He's been teaching us about how forgiveness comes to us completely by grace. We do nothing to deserve it or merit it. And he's also been teaching us about how the forgiveness that we see by grace compels us, motivates us, to be forgiving towards each other. As we hear now from Romans 6, one of the truths that I hope is left ringing in our ears is that grace empowers us to obey God even in the most difficult things, like forgiveness often is. I mean, it would be naive to pretend that forgiveness comes easy to us, because it doesn't. But the grace of God comes to us and enables us to obey him in the things that he calls us to do. God is for us in all of the things that he commands us to do, and he is for us through his grace. This is one of the things, one of the key truths that I think Romans 6 presses upon us. I'd put it to you like this. If I can find it, yes. I'd put it to you like this. God desires that we present ourselves to him as instruments for righteousness, as made possible only through his grace. I take righteousness here to mean simply doing the kinds of things and being the kinds of people that please God. Now, in order to see this more clearly, let's just remind ourselves of the context of Romans 6. What has Paul uh, been saying in the first five chapters of his letter to the Romans that kind of help us to understand what he's going to say to us now? Well, he's been saying that all of us know God. All of us know him as the creator and sustainer of our lives, but that none of us naturally, in our natural condition, none of us worship him. Instead, we worship created things. Even when we do the things that we know God commands of us, what he requires of us, we do them from an impure heart because we do them for selfish reasons or we don't give any thought to the glory of God. So that even down to our hearts, there can be no question of our meriting mercy from God. But, Paul has also said, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. And this is the righteousness of faith through Jesus Christ. Jesus died for the ungodly and secured for his people reconciliation with God. We did not deserve this reconciliation at all. But the awesome love of God has been demonstrated by bringing rebellious sinners such as us into a relationship with him, paying the penalty of our sin and demanding no, pen no payment for this work we could never pay for ourselves. This is the grace of God, and we receive it by faith. But now, in chapter 6, Paul anticipates an objection to what he's been saying. And the objection goes like this. If it is true that God saves sinners through grace alone, and if it is true that we are reconciled to God in no other way than by receiving the benefits of Christ by faith, and if it is true that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, such that God's grace is shown to be all the more glorious, because he's overcome death for his people, adopted them into his fellowship, and in all of this has not deviated one iota from his perfect righteousness. If all of this is true, why should we go on sinning in order to maximize grace? Another way to put it, and I think one that strikes a little bit closer to the way we are sometimes tempted to feel, is like this. Doesn't this grace mean that we have no need to be obedient to God? Our text contains Paul's emphatic answer to this question. In order that we may hear it with faith, let us ask God's help to hear his word with hearts ready to do and believe all that he says. Pray with me. Blessed Father, we come now before you thankful for your mercy and grace to us, which has redeemed us and brought us into your fellowship. We pray now that we be ready and eager to hear what you have to teach us and ready to believe all that you have to tell us. 
Let me not say anything that is contrary to your word, but help me to be faithful to what you have told us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's turn to our set text. Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Paul says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So right from the get-go, from the start, from these words, God makes clear that grace, so far from enabling, excusing, or endorsing our sin, has our righteousness, our doing the kinds of things and being the kinds of people that please God as its aim. Grace is the only thing that truly enables us to live righteously before God. To the question, does justification by unmerited grace mean that we can go on sinning? Or does justification by grace mean that we have no need to be told to be righteous? Paul answers with a resounding, by no means. But why? The way Paul answers is by pointing to baptism. It's as if he's saying to the Roman Christians, and now to us, don't you know what your baptism was all about? This question is always relevant, and it's relevant for us now. I'd say it like this. Do we understand the grace of God shown to us in our salvation as signified in our baptism, namely, as uniting us to Christ? It's as if Paul says, don't you see, the gospel is about being united to Christ. That's what your baptism signifies and seals. It's as if he's saying, this gospel of unmerited grace I've been declaring to you that reconciles you to God apart from your works and that you receive by faith and that is signified and sealed by your baptism works by uniting you to Jesus so that his death for sin becomes your death for sin and his resurrection secures your new life. This is what grace does for us. Grace buries us with Christ. Grace raises us from, the de from, dead, from, the death, uh, from, from death with Christ and grace gives us new life with Christ. And what is the implication, what is the practical result of being buried with Christ and raised from Christ and given new life with Christ? The power of sin is broken. How can it be possible then for sin destroying grace to provide an occasion for sinning? The answer, of course, is that it can't. Paul continues to flesh out what this means. So again, look at the text, starting with verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So, God's grace does more than transform our legal status. It transforms the kind of people we are and are becoming. Apart from God, we lived under the reign of sin and its power over us was unrelenting. Now, our sin is both inherited and self-chosen, so we have no excuse to avoid God's wrath. We cannot completely claim that sin has somehow kidnapped us against our wills. Nonetheless, the sin we have come to love and revel in is our master, and it exerts a cruel and tyrannical rule over our lives. It bends our wills in an unholy direction. It makes self-interest, the governing principle of our lives. And it turns our virtues into vices inasmuch as whatever we do that is outwardly sweet and good is inwardly self-seeking and indifferent to God's glory. In the grip of sin, 
We live by a kind of animal instinct and cannot do otherwise than what appeals to our natural appetites. Precisely because this is our hopeless condition apart from grace, Paul has argued, is what makes God's grace shine more greatly. This reality, this old nature, has been overcome through the death and resurrection of Jesus, who, as it were, plunges his people into a new reality as their representative head. The way we come into this new reality of freedom from the power of sin, release from the penalty of sin, and favor from God is by being united to Christ so that what is true of him becomes true of us. We receive this new reality, in other words, by grace alone. This is what grace is. It is not the triumph of God's mercy over his justice. It is not God deciding our sin doesn't really matter. It's not the negation of God's perfect righteousness. By grace, we are regarded as righteous, as always doing and having done only what is pleasing to God by the work of Jesus for us. It is the removal of our guilt by Jesus' death. It is God's declaration that sin matters so much, it is so incompatible with his holy character, that he required the death of his own son to redeem his people from it. It is the triumph of God's mercy through his justice, and it is our being adopted into, into God's righteousness, God's righteous fellowship, through being united to Jesus. Grace is the creation of a new reality in which God's people live with him in peace and righteousness through the work of Jesus on their behalf. God's grace is therefore our sin's deadliest enemy and our only strength for obedience. Hear Paul again, verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This raises, I think, a question for us. We need to consider what is the purpose of our redemption? Merely to free us from the penalty of sin or to break its power over us so that we may walk in newness of life? The answer is that our redemption through union with Christ redeems us both from the wrath of God and the power of sin, not that we are instantly holy. Not that we don't continue to struggle with sin and doubt and fear, but that despite our unholiness, God is for us. And by grace, he is making us more and more like Christ, helping us more and more to die to sin, more and more to trust him and love him with our whole heart. This is what he has promised to do, and he does it through our being united to Christ. So the more and more we learn to hate our sin and despair of its hold in our lives, the more and more we are comforted by God's grace and come to understand the beauty of it. The gospel is good news for those who want fellowship with God and cannot abide the sin that stands between them and his holiness. It would not really be good news to be free from God's wrath, but still left in our sinful bonds, so that we didn't want anything to do with him or obedience to his word. Whenever we are tempted to think that grace gives free reign to our sin, we should remember that God loves us too much for that to be the case. He has done so much more for us through his grace. It would be foolish to disobey God and say that we have no need to change because of grace. That is not what grace is. Rather, the gospel offers us the transformation of our status before God, not merely the declaration that we are free from sin's penalty, but the declaration that we are no longer in Adam, but in Christ which is simply to say that Adam's sinfulness is no longer our destiny, 
Jesus' obedience is. We have been delivered from the old humanity. That old nature has been killed with Christ. And we've been given to a new humanity with Christ as its head. The gospel is the declaration that God's people have been rescued from slavery, from the slavery of sin, and are now free to live as God's redeemed people. The gospel is the announcement that those who are in Christ are enabled to put on righteousness by grace, and able to live in a way that is pleasing to God by grace. Not perfectly, but progressively. Not instantly obedient, but empowered to become more and more obedient by God's grace. God is with us and for us, and he fights for us in the fight against sin. I love the way that John Stott, the great Bible commentator and Bible preacher from a generation ago, put it. He said it like this. We deserved to die for our sins, and in fact we did die, though not in our own person, but in the person of Jesus Christ, our substitute, who died in our place, and with whom we have been united by faith and baptism. And by union with the same Christ, we have risen again. So the old life of sin is finished, because we died to it, and the new life of justified sinners has begun. Our death and resurrection with Christ render it inconceivable that we should go back. Paul pushes us further in, this, in his text, though. From telling us from the, at the very start who we are in Christ, he now moves to tell us what we should do in light of that reality. Hear what he says in verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. I have said that sin is the very thing that enables us to be righteous in Christ alone. But Paul pushes us further in this text. From telling us what is true about ourselves if we are in Christ, Paul now moves to tell us what we must do in light of this reality. The point of what he is saying is that grace compels us to become what we are in Christ. Now it is important to see that grace doesn't compel us to righteousness in the same way that the law does. The law demands obedience, but doesn't supply the power for obedience. The law then merely exacerbates the problem because it shows the depth of depravity to which our old nature is sunk. The law clearly demonstrates the extent to which we are under the power of sin. We merely use it to show how much enmity we are with God. Grace, however, compels us towards obedience in a different way. It does not merely show us what we must do. Rather, it shows us what we now are and enables us to live in light of that reality. In Christ, our relationship with Adam, which was the relationship that defined and determined the character and destiny of our old self, has been brought to nothing, and a new relationship has been created in its place, a relationship with Christ. Our relationship with Christ now defines and determines the character and destiny of our new lives. So what we are called to do Indeed, what we are privileged to do is to live in terms of that reality. The great task of the Christian life, therefore, is to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Formerly, the power of sin led us towards death. But through Jesus, we've been cleared of all charges and released from sin's power. Now we must reckon that this is true, which is to say, we must add up what it means to be the recipients of grace. What Paul is exhorting us here to do is not some kind of process of self-actualization or just wishful thinking and if you imagine that you're really free from grace you'll somehow make it true. No, 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 no. What he is commending that we do is gospel math. 
Add up what Jesus accomplished for his people. Add up what the bondage of sin meant for you when you were far from God's kingdom. Add up what the what, add up what freedom in Christ now means for you. See the story that God has written and see your place in it. This is a, there is a true reality of grace to be reckoned with. And if you will do the reckoning, you will see how absurd it is to remain in sin. Even more, you will see how God draws you out of the kingdom of sin with all of his power, with all of his mercy, and with all of his kindness. Your being united to Christ means that the strongest possible force towards righteousness is placed upon you. And yet doesn't break you, because the strongest possible power is given to you to walk in the path of obedience. This reality pushes us continually to check our hearts and ask ourselves, in what ways are we demonstrating that we desire to be holy as God is holy, through grace alone and Christ alone? How are we showing that righteousness is our goal through grace alone and Christ alone? Does the orientation of our everyday life demonstrate more and more that we value righteousness above the desires of the world? Does the way we spend our time, the commitments we make, the money we spend, or the things we value demonstrate more and more a, a kind of divine instinct that comes from our status as alive to God and Jesus? Do we welcome out opportunities to drown out the sweet but deadly whispers of our old nature, calling out, as it were, from the old world, and to increase our perception of the new life we have in Jesus and his kingdom? Being united to Christ means that what is true of him is now true of you because he represents you. Death no longer has a claim on Jesus. Jesus will never die again. What we must know from this text is that if we are in Christ, death is not final. We will be resurrected to live in righteousness before God forever. But even more amazingly, we stand on resurrection ground even now. Yes, the final resurrection is still in the future. But we are called to live this very day in terms of the resurrection that Jesus has secured for us. We are to live as people made alive to God. The way we do this, Paul says, is by refusing to present our bodies as instruments for sin and instead presenting ourselves as instruments for righteousness. This is a call to active work. To not present our members to sin means simply to refuse to give our hands, our minds, our hearts, our eyes, in short, the whole of ourselves, to opportunities to disobey the Lord, and instead to present our members to righteousness, which just means to give the whole of ourselves to opportunities to obey him, to increase our devotion to him, to increase our perception of the grace that has called us out of the kingdom of sin and into his righteous fellowship. This is something of a trivial example, but I reckon every now and then a preacher has to be willing to embarrass himself to make a point, so I'll do that now. I spend, it seems to me, an inordinate amount of time on the YouTube app on my phone. It's a dangerous thing to have a YouTube app on your smartphone, I think. I mean, it's a dangerous thing to have a smartphone full stop, probably, but you add to the danger by putting a YouTube app on there. And the reason why is that I will spend just amazing amounts of time Swipping through silly videos in a desperate attempt to find even the slightest entertainment value. And just, I can whittle away a whole afternoon sometimes doing this. It's really crazy. And yet by comparison, how easy it is for me to give up reading the Bible after five minutes because my attention drifts to other things or because what I'm reading seems tedious or, oh God, just, you know, he's not really speaking to me through this. I have inexhaustible resources, it sometimes seems, and patience and determination to be trivially entertained for a fleeting moment and so little time to give to increasing my devotion to God, to meditating over his word, to thinking over his excellent worth and his amazing love. So little time to give to loving others and serving them as Jesus serves me, to learning from other saints how to live in a way that brings God glory and advances 
the knowledge of him and his kingdom throughout the whole world. The moment some difficulty gets in my way with regard to that, how easy it is to make excuses, to pick up my ball and go home. Doesn't it sometimes seem like we are veritable factories of excuses for our lack of zeal for spiritual things? I mean, I know I do it. I hear people say things like, I'm so busy, and I've said this before to my own self. I'm so busy, I have no time to read the Bible. Or work leaves me no time to meet with others to discuss God's word. Or it's too far to drive during the week and too inconvenient on the weekend. Or I wouldn't know the first thing to say to my unbelieving neighbor about the gospel. Or, you know, no one ever asked me to serve. Or I have papers to write, I have books to read, I have errands to run, a thousand other things. While these things may be true, And while it is true we can never think of God's approval of of us as dependent upon our works, what we also must remember is that through his grace, God is leading us to become even more zealous for him than we are for our worldly success. Constantly, I need to remind myself that God's grace is not given to me so that I can be apathetic about obedience. It's easy to get into that way of thinking, isn't it? But here is Paul saying, as strongly as it is possible to do, may it never be. Yes, through grace, the heavy burden of the law is fulfilled for us by Jesus. Yes, through grace, the righteousness of Jesus becomes our righteousness by faith. Yes, through grace, we come just as we are, sin-soaked, miserable, failing rebels, to the throne of God, and we are adopted into his glorious, all-satisfying fellowship. A thousand times, yes. But let us not leave out that through grace we are called and empowered to become, in reality, the righteous sons and daughters that we are reckoned to be by our union with Jesus. Let us diligently learn to love the things that God commands. Let us train ourselves to desire the things that he promises. Let us not do this as though we were under the law, obliged to satisfy a divine requirement that we could never meet, or out of some abstract obedience to a cosmic law which is simply out there and which just threatens us. Instead, let us do the gospel math and see that we have been redeemed into a new reality. We are new creatures in Jesus. The righteousness which once stood against us is now our delight. It does not threaten us. Its unbending requirements are perfectly satisfied by Jesus on our account. Instead, through grace, we are called and empowered to taste and see that the Lord is good, to obey him, and so find him the all-satisfying delight of our souls. Henry Skugel a 17th century Puritan and author of one of the best practical works of devotion I've ever read in my life, said this about what it means to live in union with Christ. He said this, The love which a pious man bears to God in goodness is not so much by virtue of a command enjoining him to do so as by a new nature instructing and prompting him to it. The Christian prays and gives thanks and repents not only because these things are commanded, but rather because he is sensible of his wants and of the divine goodness and of the folly and misery of a sinful life. He who has given himself entirely unto God will never think he does too much for him. So, what does Romans 6 teach us? Romans 6 teaches us that we are to remember who we are in Christ as signified by our baptism. So much of Paul's exhortation can be summed up in a call to remember. It's an appeal to the mind. How easy it is to forget the reality of the gospel. How easy it is to conceive of it merely as some fine talk about being accepted by God. We must be diligent to remind ourselves of the fullness and richness of our union with Christ. 
This is what grace has done for us. Remember our baptism, how necessary this is. Often it does not feel like we are new creatures. Often the pull of sin seems very strong. Often the remaining sin in our lives exerts a heavy influence. Often we fail. But the reality of the situation is not dependent upon our works or our feelings. Praise God for this. Fight to see what is real. Work hard to do the gospel map and reckon yourselves to live no longer under the dominion of sin. Live in the reality of God's grace. Romans 6 also teaches us that we are to fight sin and walk in newness of life in humble dependence upon God's grace. So we've been learning recently from God's word about forgiveness, about how God forgives us not because we are deserving, but because he is merciful. And we've heard the call from God's word to be forgiven as we've been forgiven. And yet sometimes this feels like we are told to do the impossible. Let us rejoice in the fact that God's grace is powerful. We can be transformed through grace. So don't give up. Come to Jesus in faith. Rest upon him alone and not upon your works for salvation. Fight the sin that remains in you in reliance upon his power, made effectual in you by the Holy Spirit. For this is what grace calls you to. This is the new reality grace has created for you. Love the Lord with all your heart and fight sin with all your might. Grace empowers you to do it and grace compels you to do it. Pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you've called us out of the kingdom of sin and into new life with you. Help us to do the gospel math. Help us to remember who we are in Christ. Help us to fight sin, not in our own strength, but in reliance upon your grace. For we cannot do anything apart from you, especially obey you. And yet this is the desire of our hearts, to, to obey you because we love you. So help us to do these things through your grace. Thank you that you promised to do them through your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.